First of all, I, I, I think, um, is it Betsy? Needs an award. <laughs> Thank you for reading the scripture so well and with such passion and feeling. I want to say, begin by saying that uh, um, I want to thank you for letting me open the word with you. Our churches really do have many things in common. In fact, even this building, we, we met here from 2001 to 2003 while, while ours was being built. Uh, so I remember these seats. That's why I got to get up and preach and you had to stay, stay right there. I'm, I'm, one of the things that I'm also uh, very thankful for that we have in common, Betsy and I have in common with you, is that we love Jimmy and Christine, and uh, we're thankful that you have them, and we're thankful that they have you. Um, I have some Jimmy stories. Uh, I, I will say that I did teach Jimmy how to tie a tie. A lot of good that did. My plan this morning is, is to look in the Word of God at the story that Betsy just read for us in Acts 16 primarily as a case study to illustrate a very important biblical principle. And I'm going to have a longer illustration, I'm sorry, a longer introduction because I want to set the table for the story that we just read. Uh, and, and the... the Here's the principle. At the close of the book of Acts, Paul was under house arrest uh, in Rome, and he wrote this prayer to the Philippian church. He prayed this from Philippians 1, 20 and 21, that Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. More of Christ. I move from the immediate to the immediate presence of Jesus and faith becomes sight. It's all good. This speaks to an important part of your sanctification, which is also a strategy that God uses in evangelism. And it is entirely out of your control to initiate. You can only choose how you will respond. It's all about suffering that comes into your life. And here's the plan. Part one, you suffer. Part two, they watch. And whoever they may be. It may be enemies. It may be just bystanders. But they watch. That's the plan. And they take notice of how you respond. And you can track this in the early chapters of the book of Acts. And it begins with Jesus' statement in Acts 1.8. You shall be my witnesses. And if you go through the book of Acts, there is a list of increasing hostility that the early church went through. In chapter 2, there was mocking. In chapter 4, interrogation. Also in chapter 4, threats. In chapter 5, imprisonments. In chapter 5, later, beatings. In chapter 6, slander. In chapter 7, murder. In chapter 8, genocide. This is not a rare thing for Christians. This is, in fact, the norm for Christians in a hostile world. 
This is certainly the norm for our brothers and sisters in Christ across the rest of the globe. Acts 1.8 doesn't just simply say, you shall witness. It says, you shall be my witnesses. And the, the Greek word for witness there is martus. We get our word martyr from it. Listen to Acts chapter 5, verses 40 and 41. Just listen to these words. After calling the apostles in, they, this is the Sanhedrin, they flogged them. Who's them? The apostles, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they released them. So they, that is the apostles who had deserted Jesus earlier because of fear of the Sanhedrin, fear of the council, they went on their way from the presence of the council, listen to this, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah. In Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, after Stephen became a martus, a martyr, the witness who died, Saul of Tarsus, the first terrorist, instigated a genocide against all the, Jew- the Jesus followers. The text tells us that Paul, or Saul, began ravaging the church and dragging off men and women. He would try to get them to blaspheme. Had he tried to get them to blaspheme, do you say, please, please, pretty please? Would you? No, it's torture. Later on, he says, I persecuted the way until the death. The word that's used to describe how he ravaged the church is the same word that's used in classical Greek of, a, of an animal, a predator who has his prey cornered, and the prey is unable to escape, and he's not dead yet, he's quivering, but the predator does not wait until the prey dies before he begins to eat. And that's the word that's used to describe what Saul of Tarsus did to the early church. So what did the early church do? We read in Acts 8, 4, that those who were persecuted left Jerusalem. They had to flee. They left everything that they had, and they went on their way. And I'm quoting from Acts 8, 4, not whining. That would be me. They went on their way preaching the word. You suffer, they watch, and they take note of how you respond. Then in Acts 9, after Jesus saved Saul of Tarsus, which is proof that God can save anybody, God had to nudge Ananias, do you remember that, to go see Saul. And this is the word of explanation that he gave. I'm reading from Acts 9, 15. Listen, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. And and then the Lord adds this seemingly irrelevant statement. Listen to what he continues to say. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. If there's ever any doubt about Paul's sufferings, you can read 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. So all of this is the rationale behind what you all have been studying in 1 Peter. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 3, 
verses uh, 14 and uh, 15. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Why? Because they're watching you. They see something that's different that they do not have. And they know that you are able to live above the circumstances, not under the circumstances, in ways that does not make sense to them. What is different about you? However, your apologetic to them, that defense to them, is with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. You suffer, they watch. It's Memorial Day weekend, so I think it's probably appropriate for me to tell you a story about a uh, soldier that is a friend of mine, Betsy's. Uh, For the last 30, our church started 34 years ago. 36 years ago, we began a ministry, and the elders of my church uh, grant permission for me to continue this ministry uh, it's with a group called the Officers Christian Fellowship, the OCF. It's, uh, uh, they host Bible studies on bases, on aircraft carriers, and different places. They have staff people at the academies. And they have two main retreat centers. And every year for the last 36 years, Betsy and I have gone up to one of those retreat centers and taught Bible for a week um, as a ministry. And it's, it's career military, all branches of the service. And uh, they move around so much. Uh, they have um, uh, one, one family in 22 years, they'd move 20 times. So they, they move around so much, plus with deployments. Those retreat centers are a place where they come and regroup and refresh and re- reconnect with other family, other uh, Christians in the military that they've been a part of. So we've been doing this for all these years and love these people. They are our other family and we love them deeply. And uh, one young man that we got to know is named Eric. Uh, he was kind of interested in a staff lady who was there at uh, the Springs. He was a young lieutenant. And uh, fast forward, uh, he was a little intimidated because her daddy was the head of West Point, a three-star, General Graves. Uh, but he perse- persevered, and he married Gigi, and they became close friends of ours over the next a uh, few years, and um, uh, Eric uh, uh, got his Ph.D. in, uh, ed, in organizational psychology, and he ended up as a young colonel at the, as the head of the program in, uh, uh, re, in research program in leadership at West Point. They know leadership at West Point. So he was head of the research program in leadership and published in the Harvard Business Review and I think there's some still, still some articles on leadership online in the Washington Post that he wrote. The thing about Eric is he loved Jesus. He wanted to write a book together with me on leadership biblically because he said, everything I found about leadership is in the Bible. It's just all right there in all of his research. And he said, um, well, he, he just he loved Gigi, he loved their kids. When the cancer came, he was uh, 47. They gave him two months. Because of his excellent physical condition, it was 13 months. And uh, he called me. Uh, I said, Gary, can you be with me at the end? And then can you conduct the funeral? And so I said, yeah, you bet, buddy. 
And we emailed back and forth for many months. And he, he called me one day and he said, Gary, uh, they say it's, I've got about seven days. So I went and um, he, he was wrong. He had six. And then uh, the, the very last thing that he communicated to me while he was able to communicate was, is it crazy that I can't wait to see him? When I did the funeral at West Point, the chief of chaplains told me um, it's summer, there won't be many people here. Just You just need to know that. So, in the service, I got up and I looked out over a crowd of about 800 people that had gathered to hear the gospel because of the testimony of this man, how well loved. First three rows were the generals. That's how they do it there, I guess. It was an amazing testimony. You suffer, they watch, because God has eternal purposes that extend beyond what you can begin to imagine. He sees things from the eternal view in, in ways in which we do not. So here you suffer, they watch, and they see something that they don't have, but you do, that enables you to live above the circumstances. Listen one more time to Philippians 1. To you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's not a gift that we all want to rush and claim, is it? It has been granted not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. What's Paul talking about? What did the Philippians see in him that was to impact their own thinking about suffering and about the gospel? And here's where we go back in time to the second missionary journey to Acts 16. If you're not already there, you have it in the bulletin. Uh, we're going to be looking at, at, at this passage for a few moments. All too often, here's the deal. We identify God's blessing with good circumstances. And of course, we define what good means. If things are going well, God is pleased with me. And I am pleased with God. How presumptuous does that sound? If things are not going well and circumstances fall apart, we feel like God's abandoned us. Because surely God cannot inhabit bad circumstances, right? No, that's wrong thinking. So uh, as we look at this story in Acts chapter 16, there is an outline, by the way, in your notes somewhere. I'm not going to be following it, but it may, helpful, may be helpful for you to follow uh, where I'm going uh, with it with the text itself. In Acts chapter 16, uh, the missionary team was on their way. They had just been in the area where the first missionary journey had taken place, in the Galatian region, and they had visited those churches. And then at that point, in the Galatian region, Paul felt in his spirit that he wanted to go north. But the Holy Spirit closed the door. Then he wanted to go south. And the Spirit closed the door. They'd already been from the east, so the only place that they were 
there was to go was to go west. So they continued on to the, on the west, uh, to, uh, in the direction of the west, all the way over to the coast to Troas. Now, if you think about this, what do the circumstances look like? Well, actually, they look pretty good because God does lead by closing doors, does he not? So there is the leading of God. We are following the leading of God. I didn't close those doors. God closed those doors. So, okay, God's leading. Good. That's good. So far, so good. And then they arrive at at Troas, where they also pick up Luke, the first medical missionary. And there at Troas, God gives them, God gives Paul, the vision of a man from Macedonia who says, come over to Macedonia and help us. Macedonia is the Macedonia Greek area right across the Aegean Sea from Troas, the tip of Europe. What he was saying, it was a confession, this man from, from Macedonia, that all that was the greatest in Greek and Roman philosophy and art and literature and science was not enough. They needed the gospel. And so God gave them the direction where they should be going. Now, God, first of all, led negatively by closing doors. Good, right? Good circumstances? So far, so good? Then he leads positively by giving them the guidance of where they should be going. Does that, does that sound good? So God now is leading on into Europe. So they travel over into uh, the, from Troas to Samothrace to Neapolis, which is on the coast. And then they go up to Philippi. Philippi was founded by uh, Philip of Macedon, Macedonia. He was the father of Alexander the Pretty Good. And uh, the, the city was named for him in about 356 B.C. It was a Roman colony. And as Paul's practice was, he was going to go to a synagogue and the marketplace. Those are the two places where the people were that he was going to talk to, the Jews and the Gentiles. Well, if there was no synagogue in a town, the Jews would have a place where you had to have a quorum at that time of 10 Jewish men to have a synagogue. If there were not 10 Jewish men, they would meet in a place for prayer that was close to water where they could have ceremonial ablutions. And in this case, there were no Jewish men in Philippi. So, we read on the Sabbath day, verse 13, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place for prayer. We sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. No men. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. First convert. What did the circumstances look like? Pretty good. Who opened her heart? The Lord did. Paul didn't have anything to do with that. That's clearly God's direct work. Verse 15, when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Paul doesn't have to work as a tent maker to support his entourage. They can devote their full time to evangelism. Circumstances look pretty good. Again, God clearly is leading in this because everything is good, right? It happened, verse 16, that as they were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us. It was bringing her master as much profit by fortune telling. 
Verse 17 tells us, following after Paul and us, she kept crying out saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Well, Jesus never accepted demonic testimony and Paul didn't either. He turned and cast the spirit out of her. And if if any of you are ever wondering about that, but wasn't she speaking the truth? Wasn't she helping? No, the phrase, the Most High God, was sort of our generic phrase like supreme being. It means, uh, its meaning is dependent upon the context in which you hear it. Now, to a Jew, the Most High God would be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How many Jews were there in Philippi? None. To a Roman, it would be Zeus. So they cast the spirit out of this girl. What do the circumstances look like? Wonderful. God is led negatively by closing doors. God is led positively by bringing us to Troas and over into Philippi. God opened Lydia's heart. God opened Lydia's home. God has now cast out this spirit. We couldn't do that. That's God's work. We are clearly in the center of God's will. Well, wait just a minute. Verse 19. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, I'm going to enumerate what they did. Number one, they seized Paul and Silas. Number two, and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they brought them to the chief magistrates and said, these men are throwing our city into confusion being Jews and proclaiming customs that are not lawful for us to accept or observe, being Romans. The third thing they did was slander them because what bothered them had nothing to do with the racial prejudice against Jews, which may explain why there were so few Jewish men in Philippi. What they're accusing them of, though, is being Jews versus being Romans. So they did. the crowd rose up together against them. The chief magistrates, four, tore their robes off of them, and proceeded to order them to be, fifth, beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, sixth, they threw them into the prison. There is a word in the Greek for put that's not used here. They threw them into the prison and commanded the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, seventh, threw them, same word again, threw them into the inner prison the dungeon, and then eighth, fastened their feet in the stocks. And when you and I think of stocks, not New England stocks. Romans had stocks that were spring-loaded leg stocks. They would put them on the legs, flip the switch, jerk the legs apart. So, what do the circumstances look like? Because I will promise you that as far as Paul and Silas knew, this could be the end. God has brought us over here to have Lydia saved? Okay. We read in verse 25, But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners... Now, I promise you, who would have been asleep, were listening to them. Was that the same two guys that were dragged in front of it? In horrible condition? Were those the same two guys? Yes. 
the prisoners were listening to them, and I think it took a while for Paul and Silas to recover and to remind each other, are we in God's will? Yes. Even in these circumstances, we are in God's will. So at midnight, they're praying. They're singing praises to God. Well, you know what happened. God caused a great earthquake. All the doors were open. Everyone's chains were off. The Philippian jailer ran to the prison, and having seen the doors open, having seen the chains, he took out his sword and was about to fall on it because he assumed that they had all escaped. That would be the logical assumption. But instead, Paul sees him silhouetted there and shouts out, Do yourself no harm, for we are both here. No, no, I'm sorry, that's not what he said. We are all here. So he calls one of his, his other jailers, gets, gets a light, bursts in, and pull, brings Paul and Silas out. The other prisoners are there. They stayed with Paul and Silas. Maybe Paul and Silas had something that they didn't have, and they knew it was different, and they too connected the earthquake with Paul and Silas, just as the magistrates are about to do. So the jailer brings them out, and he asks the question that occurs only here at any, the only place that it's asked this way in all of the New Testament. What must I do to be saved? And Paul said, worship in the church or synagogue of your choice. No. What did he say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You, your household, I think we'd add anybody. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And he did. And Paul spoke the word to the household, and they did. And they were baptized. They were rejoicing together. And then about dawn, the magistrates who connected the earthquake somehow with the unjust treatment of Paul and Silas sent, release those men. (laughs) And Paul says, excuse me, you're about to bring us out of jail and release us, having punished us without a trial... And do you remember earlier, being Jews, being Romans? Here's what Paul says. Having punished us without a trial, being Romans. And they were terrified when they learned, terrified when they learned that Paul and Silas were both Roman citizens. And the magistrates came and begged them. Paul used his leverage there. Why? I think because he was protecting the fledgling church that was going to remain for at least for a time. So they left Philippi. Now when you look at the circumstances, what if the story had ended at verse 24? In the dungeon, in the stocks. Would God still be good? Would God still be sovereign? Because I'll tell you, that's the way some of our stories end. In fact, in Acts chapter 12, Peter and James were both put in jail in that same chapter. James, brother of John. James was executed. Peter was the one who was miraculously released just as Paul was here. Why the difference? God has his reasons and we don't know why. Paul couldn't control his circumstances, but he could choose how he would respond And that response was the testimony to the jailer, to the other prisoners, 
earlier to Lydia, later I think probably even to the slave girl, to the new Philippian church, so that later when Paul wrote to Philippi from prison again, he wrote about joy, and they knew he spoke the truth. Philippians 1.29, to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Listen, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. The Philippians also knew exactly what Paul meant when he wrote to them about those who now were believers in the whole Praetorian Guard, Philippians 1.13. In fact, the jailer would say, excuse me, that's my testimony. And throughout Caesar's household, Philippians 4.22. It immediately resonated, resonated with, the, with the Philippians. They had seen suffering, joy, and gospel blended. I want to add one very important perspective So far, what we've been focusing on is suffering is persecution. But there's other kinds of suffering that we endure by God's grace and with God's help. Here's a list. Unfaithfulness of spouse, death of a child, loss of parents, disillusionment over a parent's sin, loss of a job, losing your best friend to a heart attack, children hooked on drugs, child in the gay lifestyle, unmarried child having a child, twice. Struggling with depression and suicide, mental illness, chronic debilitating physical illness. Twelve items I just mentioned. They're all in one family that I know. All of it. One family. At our church, we have a a cancer list. Who has a cancer list? Does it... And I know that your church understands this well. Um, Which is why the first book, I think, to be inscripturated in the Old Testament was Job. Job. And the first book to be inscripturated in the New Testament was James. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That's how it starts. Both of them dealing with suffering. Two quick stories. Our time is gone. Betsy and I have suffered uh, deeply with one of our children. This is not what we wanted. It's not what we signed up for. It's not in our plan. But we found that our suffering as parents opened doors to ministry, even in our own church, to people that were going through the same agony, only we didn't know about it. Now, if you were to ask me, Gary, for the sake of those open doors of ministry, would you say, yes, Lord, I'll go through that pain again? My answer is absolutely not. I'm not that spiritual. But the choice we do, we do have is to say with our Lord Jesus in the garden, not my will but thine be done. In September of 2016, my sweet sister was diagnosed with cancer. It was just me and her at that point um, of my family. And it was five weeks from diagnosis till the day I did her funeral. And um, she was a strong Christian. Her testimony to everyone around her in the hospital was amazing. She was ready to meet the Lord. And I'm the one who struggles uh, with God's plan. Because to me, it was like yesterday. I always used to 
help fix things in her life. I couldn't fix this. But while I struggle at times to embrace Romans 8.28 or Genesis 50.20, which says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, for these larger purposes. While I struggle to embrace those verses, and frankly, while at times I a little bit resent those verses, they are my lifeline. That's what I hold on to. That's what the Holy Spirit uses to be transformed in the renewing of my mind so that my emotions are brought back around to the truth of God's Word on which we stand. That's why it's sanctify them by the truth, not by your feelings. Thy Word is truth. So, my brothers and sisters, uh, as we suffer, there's comfort. As we grieve, there is hope. And when we struggle, when the circumstances are just overwhelming, remember two things. Number one, Jesus is sovereign Lord. And nothing comes into your life that is not first passed through his hands. And those hands have holes in them. He ordained his plan from eternity past to restore all things in such an astonishing way that he himself became the chief victim of his own plan. He's the one who loves you so much he'd rather die than live without you. So if you don't know the answer to the question, why? We do know the answer to the question, who? And that's enough. That's enough. Because we don't interpret Christ's love by our circumstances. Instead, we interpret our circumstances by Christ's love. A second thought. Our last thought. This world is not our home. It's preparation for home. And of all the churches, it's the Philippian church to which he writes, our citizenship is in heaven. Here we are ambassadors for Christ. We're to speak the gospel. We're to live the gospel. We are to die the gospel. God will use your suffering in ways that you cannot see and in ways that you may never even know about here on this mission field called earth to glorify himself because this is not home. Or as our Lord Jesus Christ put all of this in his words, you shall be my witnesses. Lord, we thank you for the example that we see in your word. We thank you for the truth of it. And we ask, Father, that you would help us to be faithful to apply that which is eternal. In Jesus' name, amen.